brothers and sisters, comrades and friends, welcome to another edition of Weekends with Jacobin. I am your host, Nando Vila. My regular co-host, Anna Kasparian, is off today, but we are very, very lucky to have Ariella Thornhill with us. Ariella is a board member of Jacobin. She's also a writer. She's the author of a forthcoming book called Socialist Sex Education. Am I correct? Yeah, Socialist Sex Ed. Socialist Sex Ed. Wow, that sounds fun. <laughs> Hopefully it is. Um, the goal of the book is to kind of teach sex education without naturalizing the effects of capitalism and inequality. So rather than say, like, if you get pregnant, you know, your life is ruined. It unpacks why we have a society and social structures that create those outcomes. And then it talks to kids about what it would mean to fight for their rights um, to sexual pleasure, to reproductive care and to economic security. And so it looks at different campaigns where people have worked on these things, like the California teacher strike, asking nurses, asking for a nurse in every high school and, and things like that. I'm very excited about it. And it's illustrated. I'm, I'm imagining <laughs> like the new Beastie Boys song, like you got to fight for your right to sexual pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll work on recording. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for filling in uh, for Anna. I'm very happy. Um, I'm very excited for your commentary. I got a little sneak peek. Uh, It's absolutely terrifying, but in 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 the best way possible. So I'm very excited. (laughs) (laughs) I want to remind the audience. Of course, of course. Um, And I want to remind the audience, and we're going to do it this time, um, to send in your super chat questions for the end. Kale will gather them and read them. Um, We're going to have Matt Karp on to talk about his gargantuan piece in Jacobin this week, uh, this issue um, with, I mean, it's just all the data you could ever want on the Bernie postmortem campaign. Um, So we're very much looking forward to that. If you have any questions for him, send them in. Um, And uh, yeah, I'm very excited for the show today where it's going to be, it's going to be a good one. Me too. I'm very excited to talk to Matt. All righty. Um, now we got to do the verso read. Obviously, Ariella, you know, you know this, you know this well. You know how this works. This is how this yes. is what pays the bills. All right. <laughs> so now you can join the Verso Book Club and get every new ebook that Verso publishes each month, as well as one or more new books in the mail if you choose a print subscription. All Verso Book Club members will also get fifty percent off all books for as long as you are a subscriber. To celebrate their fiftieth anniversary and the launch of the book club, each member tier is fifty percent off for the first three months. The comrade tier is now twenty dollars, and if you join in September, you'll get climate crisis and the global green new deal the political economy of saving the planet by noam chomsky and robert poland glitch feminism a manifesto by legacy russell corona climate chronic emergency war communism in the 21st century by andreas mom wow that one sounds timely care manifesto the politics of interdependence by the care collective and then a new edition of the groundings with my brothers by walter rodney plus You'll get eight additional ebooks. Wow, that's a good deal. People, sign up for Verso immediately. Okay, Ariel, you ready to get the show on the road? Yeah, this sounds great. So this week in elections news, we on the left cheered on as incumbent Senator Ed Markey defeated the latest Kennedy scion to be forced upon us, Joe Kennedy III, in the Massachusetts Democratic primary. 
Antoinette, historic because we expect turnout to set a new record for a state primary and because a Kennedy has never lost a Massachusetts election. While the results are still coming in, it does appear to be a clear win for Markey in this race. Kennedy called his opponent to concede around 10 o'clock last night and told his supporters the larger battle is far from over. Yeah, this result was a bit of a surprise because when the race started back in 2019, Joe Kennedy jumped out to a commanding lead, and that lead held to as late as March of this year. Our exclusive Suffolk WBZ Globe poll finds Kennedy in the lead by six points, just outside the survey's 4.4% margin of error. And given that a Kennedy had never lost an election in Massachusetts, it was considered a given that RFK's grandson would coast to an easy victory against a Senator Markey, who wasn't exactly a household name in the way other Massachusetts senators like Elizabeth Warren or John Kerry were. No, there's no more winning turns. And, and in our state, we have seen over many cycles now challengers taking out incumbents. And especially with Trump in the White House, there's no more important time for people. I mean, to I think it's up. a bold move, but something we should have expected. It's a good move for Kennedy. I think he's, yeah. he's the, the, the favorite, no question. No but Markey did it. He won. How? How did this crusty old senator that no one had heard of 15 minutes ago defeat the latest iteration of the Kennedy dynasty? Well, he did it because despite the fact that Markey is 74 and Kennedy is 39, Markey was able to activate young voters and activists across Massachusetts. And he did this basically by moving to the left. And that in and of itself is pretty remarkable. Because throughout my entire lifetime, 99% of the time, a Democrat is facing an election with someone to their right, be it a primary or a general, they tend to move to the right in response. I mean, I'll never forget John Kerry telling George W. Bush in 2004 that actually the real problem was that he wasn't sending enough troops to Iraq. Where the 9-11 Commission confirms there was no connection to 9-11 itself in Saddam Hussein, and where the reason for going to war was weapons of mass destruction, not the removal of Saddam Hussein. This president has made, I regret to say, a colossal error of judgment. And judgment is what we look for in the president of the United States of America. Uh, I was hoping diplomacy would work. I understand the serious consequences of committing our troops into harm's way. It's the hardest decision a president makes. So I went to the United Nations. I didn't need anybody to tell me to go to the United Nations. I decided to go there myself. And I went there hoping that once and for all, the free world would act in concert to get Saddam Hussein to listen to our demands. They passed a resolution that said disclose, disarm, or face serious consequences. I believe when an international body speaks, it must mean what it says. But Saddam Hussein had no intention of disarming. This president just, I don't know if he sees what's really happening on there. But it's getting worse by the day. More soldiers killed in June than before, more in July than June, more in August than July, more in September than in August. And now we see beheadings, and we got weapons of mass destruction crossing the border every single day, and they're blowing people up. And we don't have enough troops there. <laughs> we don't have enough troops there. Never forget it. Anyway, it's not like Markey was some progressive lion. I mean, he himself voted for the Iraq war when he was a member of Congress, and his record is spotty on a lot of issues. 
And when, but when Markey got into Congress in 1976 as a 29-year-old, he came in with a lot of the so-called Watergate babies who were kind of a proto-version of today's woke centrists in that they were disgusted by the Vietnam uh, War and uh, were all pro-civil rights, but they rejected the populist economics of the New Deal generation that had dominated American, party, American politics and the Democratic Party for 40 years. Markey wasn't really like those guys. Um, Despite his youth, he had kind of like an old school labor streak to his politics. And he also, it has to be said, had some pretty socially conservative views on things like school busing. But as neoliberalism became hegemonic in the Democratic Party, Markey mostly played along, although he frequently positioned himself on the progressive side of the party, not like Bernie, but to the left of like the medium Democrat. And As he was fighting for his political life in the face of a challenge from the right, in the face of this young Joe Kennedy, Markey decided to embrace the old school populism of his youth with special emphasis on the Green New Deal, which he co-authored with AOC. I want to thank my fantastic partner on this Green New Deal resolution, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I want to thank all of the House and Senate members who are gathered here uh, with the Uh, many others who have signed on or will be signing on to this resolution. And his decision to move left and embrace the support of the younger, more radical voters needed to be rewarded, which of course flies in the face of the liberal caricature of the left, which is constantly saying that politicians like Bernie Sanders are too dogmatic about purity tests. This idea of purity and you're never compromised and you're always politically woke and all that stuff. You should get over that quickly. I'm telling you, this is going to be the death of liberals. This nitpicky, intramural attacking of friends for insufficient purity. Compulsively cleaning up a little corner of the room that's already quite clean. Ah, yes. The old cliche, the dreaded left-wing circular firing squad, a tale as old as time. And while I do think that there is an element of the left that is all too willing to condemn, moralize, and even cancel someone for not ascribing totally to a laundry list of inscrutable issues, that is certainly not true when it comes to politicians. What we need to recognize in politicians is who they are courting for power and condemn them when they can court donors or, say, rich suburbanites more on that in the interview with Matt Carp in a few minutes. And we reward them when they court social movements and activists such as the Sunrise Movement and generally speaking, the left. If they feel like they owe us for their power, they will govern for us. It doesn't matter what is in their hearts. What matters is the question, to whom do they owe power? And Markey bucked the donor class and indeed the leadership of his own party. And as he began to gain on on Kennedy in the polls and then eventually overtake him, Kennedy tried to beat him back using woke centrist attacks such as Congressman Joe Kennedy on the campaign trail in Roxbury, accusing the Markey camp of encouraging online threats. Kennedy's campaign manager firing off an email to the Markey camp writing the tone and tenor of the Markey for Senate campaign and people associated with it have reached dangerous levels. Yeah, they really tried the dreaded toxic online Bernie bro attack. They're tweeting snake emojis. Horror. The horror. But they didn't stop there. When the Boston Globe endorsed Markey, the Kennedy campaign essentially claimed it was due to racism. In a statement, Kennedy's campaign manager said, quote, If you are one of the Globe's disproportionately white, well-off, educated readers, 
The past few decades have been pretty good for you. The status quo has delivered. Ed Markey has done just fine. And too often, Democratic politicians are terrified of actual conflict. I mean, whenever there's any disagreement in a debate, they're like, guys, 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 we're not united. It just helps the Republicans. But Markey didn't blink in the face of cynical centrism. In fact, he went on the attack in the debates. He was merciless with Kennedy. And he even attacked the most hallowed totem of the Democratic Party by attacking the Kennedy name. We asked what we could do for our country. We went out. We did it. With all due respect, it's time to start asking what your country can do for you. Yeah, this little dig at John F. Kennedy's most famous line led Nancy Pelosi to endorse Joe Kennedy, which hilariously led to a huge fundraising haul for Ed Markey. So yeah, Pelosi's toxic brand aside, Markey was rewarded for moving left, and that was a source of great frustration for the apparatchiks in the Democratic Party. A gossipy postmortem in Politico had a bunch of money quotes like, quote, The Markey campaign did a masterful job of convincing voters that Ed is someone he is not. One Democratic strategist with Massachusetts ties said after the primary results were tallied. And, quote, This goes to show you that the left doesn't do their homework and they're easily won over by bright, shiny objects, said one Kennedy ally. Given Kennedy's issues with moist mouth, I would not use the term bright, shiny objects, and no Kennedy ally, we know exactly who Ed Markey has been, but we can recognize a political trajectory, and we can see beyond brands and the sheen of youth. Um, Really excited about the numbers and how they're coming in. Need you guys to get out there and vote today. If you are watching this and you are not a voter in Massachusetts, it doesn't mean you can't help. Call somebody that uh, call some of your friends that are. Send some emails, some te- text messages. Um, you can hop, log on to our page too and uh, figure out how to volunteer. The more people that vote today, the better we got, and the better we're going to do, and the more likely we're going to win. <laughs> Just the, yeah. How did that guy lose? I mean, the, the how did that guy lose? I mean, he obviously sucks. And now Marky won, and he owes us for saving his political life. And he does not owe the Democratic Party establishment anything, which means we gained an ally. We will remain vigilant, but it's an encouraging political development nonetheless. Ariella, did you canvas for Joe Kennedy? I did. I did. I Mm. got my thickest Boston accent and I said, you got (laughs) to vote for Joe. (laughs) What I think is funny about this, and I'm waiting for this, I'm waiting for this from like the mainstream media is like Kennedy curse. Is that why Ed won? Because they're Mm. never going to admit that, you know, this older white man was able to mobilize young voters across racial groups through like a strong left leaning platform. Um, And I noticed even on Facebook, some of my friends who live there were so excited, like really up to the end, didn't think that he would win. And really wanted him to because he was actually vocalizing the issues they care about. And they were really, really um, shocked and also, like, I think more politically driven after that win. And so it'll be interesting to see what comes out of that. He mobilized so many voters that had previously voted. It's unbelievable. Yeah, it's it's similar to the what Bernie Sanders was able to do, right? I mean, Bernie Sanders is like a nine hundred years old, and uh, but he his the most robust support comes from young, you know, multiracial people, uh, and uh, and and like 
political uh, consultants and people in the mainstream media like can't comprehend the idea of someone not being attracted to vote for someone that just kind of looks like them, you know, like why don't young black people vote for Kamala Harris? You know what I mean? Uh, in the Democratic Party, why are they going for the older white guy? Uh, but, it, you know, they, they just can't comprehend that a lot of this just has to do with unabashed support for big universal programs that would improve their lives. Like it's not rocket science. Exactly. And you grow a coalition by talking about the things that everyone is experiencing. If you're saying, you know, if you listen to the rallying cry of Occupy Wall Street, we are the 99% and you have a platform that answers the needs of those people who are shut out of the labor market, who can't imagine their life improving, who can't afford basic needs, you're going to get those people on your side. It's interesting that, you know, Kennedy comes from a family that was known for its kind of good looks and charm and this kind of political dynasty. And I think a lot of people were thinking, you know, this brand's going to carry him through his good looks and charm contrast to Marquis, who, you know, is an older, saggier man who's got that kind of gruff, like Massachusetts vibe going on, which I find endearing having grown up in Maine. They're sort of the same. But people don't vote that way anymore. You know, it's too dire. Their needs feel too um, extreme to settle for that kind of like centrist charm, like offensive. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting to see the death of that. Like, well, he's just an old white man um, kind of deal. Because, you know, he's an old white man who's very close to like a young brown woman who... (laughs) he co-wrote the Green New Deal bill with. Um, We, especially younger people, are really seeing through that crass identitarian shift in the Democratic Party. Absolutely. Well, Ariella, you're up. Hit me. All right. My commentary. commentary. So when you said my commentary is scary in a good way, It's scary also in a bad way. It's right on the edge of sci-fi. So I'm calling this segment the new Terminators because it centers around heartless, sometimes murderous technology. But in this case, it's not cyborg assassins doing the killing. It's the welfare benefit system. So in the U.S., over 40 million people have applied for unemployment benefits since the start of the pandemic. And with no end in sight, it's likely that number will keep increasing. We also have 12 million people who have lost their health insurance, and it's likely they will have to rely on Medicare for coverage. But look, 2.1 million, we can look and try to find little statistics here and there that make it seem a little bit better. Continuing claims, for example, came down by a few million, and I was happy about that for a second. And then I just had to think, wait a minute, 40 million people have lost their jobs in 10 weeks, either furloughed, temporarily off the job, or permanent layoffs. And when you think about who was working, Richard, at the beginning of March, think about the American labor market at the beginning of March. A quarter of those people are not working today. So that's what's really kind of the the, the context, I think, here overall. So those people will be relying on public benefit systems for their basic needs. And the scaffolding for these systems, the way they decide who is eligible and how and when they get their benefits, is algorithmically based benefit management systems created by private companies and administered by the state. 
The result is what Professor Virginia Eubanks refers to as the digital poorhouse, a tech-based management system that monitors, controls, and punishes the poor. I think it's important to understand that one of the things I talk about in the book is something I call the digital poorhouse. Um, and I talk about these systems taken together as creating an invisible digital prison for poor and working people. Um, and that's a pretty strong claim. Um, and I don't think it's just the technology that does that, but it's a collision of three forces. Um, so there's a cultural narrative that says that poverty, poverty is an individual failing and um, that it's an aberration, like it's it's. Um, not something that happens to a lot of people, a small percentage, a minority of potentially mm -hmm. pathological people. Um, there's a political system that we live in that is mostly interested and focused on asking the question, what did you do to deserve being poor, rather than how can we help? And then there's these technology systems that because they're not um, specifically and explicitly built to dismantle inequalities, these long-standing structural inequalities we see in our political system, are poised to potentially intensify them because these systems are so fast, they scale up so fast, um, they're, uh, they're very persistent, they last a long time, and because we don't always really understand how they work. So far, there are 20 states using these kinds of algorithms to determine eligibility for unemployment benefits, food stamps, and Medicaid. But other state and federal agencies use similar methods to determine which communities are policed, school placement for children, shelter for the homeless, and in some cases, to try to predict future child abuse or prisoner recidivism. If the poorhouse has become digital, the algorithm has become judge, jury, and executioner for anyone who enters it. Let's look at a few cases. In Michigan, a $447 million automated fraud detection system made 48,000 fraud accusations against unemployment benefit recipients. Without any human intervention or oversight, Michigan demanded repayment plus interest and penalties that was four times the amount owed. A state review later found that 93% of the fraud determinations were wrong. This is after the state garnished wages, levied bank accounts, and seized tax refunds, resulting in homelessness, evictions, divorce, and suicides. In one example from Virginia Eubanks's book, Automating Inequality, one million people were kicked off Medicaid in Indiana during the first three years of the state's new benefit management program, which was contracted to IBM. There are thousands of accounts of needless suffering and death due to that program, but one that stands out is Omega Young, a 50-year-old cancer patient whose food and medical benefits were cut off. On March 1st, after losing her free transportation to medical appointments, which was provided by Medicaid, Young died. On March 2nd, she won the appeal filed for wrongful termination and her benefits were restored. The program was so disastrous that Indiana canceled its $1.3 billion contract with IBM. There have been similar issues in Oregon, Arkansas, Colorado, California, and Idaho. But the problems aren't restricted to eligibility. Even if you get through the gate, you are foregoing your right to privacy, dignity, and agency. Take food stamps. In order to combat food stamp fraud, the Department of Food and Nutrition under the Trump administration created a series of grants, pilot projects, and trainings to help states implement algorithmic monitoring systems for recipients. 
Here is a diagram for how those work. The SNAP agency essentially works with federal, state, and private companies to compile data about its participants. Then the data mining algorithm compares SNAP purchase data, retailer data, and eligibility data to detect fraud. These programs track the user's every move and purchase, with algorithms flagging people for suspicious behavior like traveling out of state or using cash benefits at stores that sell tobacco or alcohol. Um, one note about that is that these populations often don't have access to grocery stores, they live in food deserts, and they travel often because of housing insecurity. But these systems rely on contracts with third-party credit and reporting agencies like Equifax, who lobby heavily for states to adopt this kind of technology. As one food stamp recipient facing cuts put it in this interview with CNN, Patients Coley and her family say they survive on food stamps after she went on medical leave, leaving the family on one income. Doing anything to the SNAP, you're going to make the poor more poor. That's exactly what it does, and it's not just in the United States. Well, as political retreats go, this one is big. A late Friday afternoon backflip by the government, abandoning the $720 million so-called robo-debt scheme targeting Centrelink recipients. More than 400,000 people will now be refunded. The government finally admitting the process was flawed. Stuart Robert takes the Friday afternoon ministerial walk of shame, rubbing out robo-debt. In good faith, the government will be uh, repaying those debts to those Australian people. 470,000 individual debts to 373,000 people, totalling $721 million. And the whole basis for the government to take money off vulnerable Centrelink recipients was illegal. Computer cross-matching of tax office and Centrelink data automatically sent out debt notices demanding the welfare repayments. The government was facing a massive class action after a federal court ruling last November deemed one of the debts illegal. The minister deciding to pay out. That's the refinement, that's the update. And it's not a refinement. He says it is the largest class action settlement in Australian history, ending four years of heartache for thousands of welfare recipients. It's been putting ordinary Australians through pain, trauma, people have lost jobs. In fact... This problem is so widespread that the UN released a statement warning governments of the, quote, grave risk of stumbling zombie-like into a digital welfare dystopia. I'm going to read the full text here because it's important, but it also misses a critical point about the appeal of these systems. So to quote the UN statement, the digital welfare state is either already a reality or is emerging in many countries across the globe. In these states, systems of social protection and assistance are increasingly driven by digital data and technologies that are used to automate, predict, identify, surveil, detect, target, and punish. This report acknowledges the irresistible attractions for governments to move in this direction, but warns that there is a grave risk of stumbling zombie-like into a digital welfare dystopia. It argues that big tech operates in an almost human rights-free zone, and that this is especially problematic when the private sector is taking a leading role in designing, constructing, and even operating significant parts of the digital welfare state. The report recommends that instead of obsessing about fraud, cost savings, sanctions, and market-driven definitions of efficiency, the starting point should be on how welfare budgets could be transformed through technology, 
to ensure a higher standard of living for the vulnerable and disadvantaged. And the report continues to warn that, quote, digital welfare states risk becoming Trojan horses for neoliberal hostility towards social protection and regulation. But there's more to it than hostility or control. The new terminators enjoy support from both sides of the aisle. Republicans focus on their fraud prevention abilities, while Democrats tout their efficiency and praise smart solutions that save government money. Take Kamala Harris's book, Smart on Crime. Kamala praises the CompStat program in Smart on Crime, saying CompStat is an example of a new way management ideas can create more efficient use of police resources. Not only did crime rates fall after CompStat was introduced selectively in Los Angeles, there was a 17% reduction in officer-involved shootings and a similar decrease in complaint from the public about police. In fact, the methods used with CompStat have now been brought into other agencies around New York for homeless services, welfare reform, and making jails safer. The idea is to be gather better data that allow you to spot patterns and anticipate problems, and then to move strategically to zero in on those problems. So we have to ask ourselves, why politicians on both sides of the aisle are so committed to the use of algorithms and predictive analysis to rationalize service provision. We need to look at our current crisis to see, we need only look at our current crisis to see why. In state after state, lawmakers are wondering if a $600 a week unemployment benefit will discourage people from working. Some states even require bosses to report on employees who don't go back to work. Tens of millions of people are out of work because of the coronavirus, but if they apply for unemployment, they get $600 a week, which is more than some were making in their previous jobs. That was a deliberate effort by Congress to cushion the economic fallout from the pandemic, but now those benefits are getting a second look. Here's NPR chief economics correspondent Scott Horsley. Preschool teacher Lainey Morris has been out of work for more than two months, but the Portland, Oregon Child Care Center, where she worked, is thinking about reopening. Morse is dreading it, as much as she loves the infants and toddlers she used to care for. They always have snotty faces. It's just one cold after another. That's just the name of the game in daycare. <laughs> and it feels just like an epicenter for spreading disease. And it feels really scary to go back to that. She is not alone. Millions of people have very obvious reasons for preferring a $600 a week benefit over a job that could expose them to a deadly virus. But the basic logic here is vulnerable and desperate people will be driven to take any job, regardless of the quality, if welfare is inadequate or inaccessible. This limits the options for employed people as well. Without a robust social safety net to fall back on, workers are less likely to push for higher wages, better benefits, or strike because the risk of job loss and subsequent destitution is greater. This is class war, and the new Terminators are its soldiers. So the goal is twofold. On the one hand, these programs cut costs and drive away applicants by narrowing the gate for public benefits. On the other, by keeping benefits low and difficult to access, the wages of working people in general are kept low. Capital is the invisible hand lobbying for these programs, banking on the one-two punch of punishing the poor and scaring workers into settling for less. This is why there is support for these programs on both sides. Republicans like the new Terminators because of their obsession with personal responsibility and fraud, 
which apparently happens less than 1% of the time, according to the USDA's website. And Democrats like them because they engender rationalized technocratic control. Finally, Capital likes them because they help narrow the scope and availability of benefits. We are drifting into fully automated austerity. This is why the left needs to and has fought for universal programs like Medicare for All. You can't have automated austerity with universal programs. You can't have a gatekeeper if there is no gate. Any socialist out there should join the hundreds of groups across the U.S. who are helping people file for benefits, appeal terminations, and investigate faulty eligibility programs. But just as importantly, we need to fight to eliminate means-tested programs and demand universal programs with guaranteed access. A free public option for the poor, which is part of Biden's platform, is not accessible if individuals have no reliable method to prove their eligibility. A boost to unemployment or food stamp benefits is meaningless if individuals are denied entry or open themselves up to baseless fraud charges when they apply. For the time being, digital welfare seems inevitable, but people have fought back on the local level to repeal bad systems or try to make them more transparent, equitable, and governed by democratic oversight. To quote Sarah Connor, the unknown future rolls towards us. I face it for the first time with a sense of hope. Because if a machine, a Terminator, can learn the value of human life, maybe we can too. Wow. Yeah, that sounds Scary. like a ne neoliberal dystopia if I've ever seen one. You know, the, the algorithm governs our lives. The algorithm as yeah. the big kind of big brother, big boss, big boss man. It's hard. The other part of the story is the algorithm is taking people's jobs. It's taking the jobs of care workers and yeah. social workers who normally work to help people get these services and they're being replaced or in some cases they're being told they have to work for the company that oversees these like IBM. And so it's also an attack on those public sector unions as well. They're yeah. doing it all. You know, I, I touched on in my commentary how the, 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 the populist New Dealers kind of dominated American politics for 40 years and the complaint that always came from the right from Republicans was that, man, these Democrats, all they do is tax, 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 spend, 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 win, win, win. Like they understood that um, these big kind of tax and spend programs ultimately um, are popular with people because they improve people's lives. Um, and it's it's been pretty obvious that as soon as the Democrats have embraced the logic of austerity um, as a sort of kind of... Uh, prime goal and you're starting to see whispers of of it in in the joe biden like in a future joe biden administration whereas republicans even though they talk about austerity a lot like they they've really like kind of embraced deficits obviously they do it in in a horrible way through tax cuts and increased military spending but they have now dominated american politics as they've they've embraced kind of the 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 flip side so it's interesting to see just how that how that works you know obviously we would rather have uh, you know, the tax, 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 spend, 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 win, 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 um, than just tax cuts and, and military spending. But right now we don't have that alternative outside of, like like you said, the groups advocating for the big social programs, Medicare for All, Green New Deal. Yeah. And, you know, you can see why there's this kind of vitriolic pushback against that from people who are, you know, centrist Democrats who really want 
these kinds of means tested programs to work hand in hand with this tech. And it's part of this kind of neoliberal technocratic agenda where, you know, for instance, Kamala Harris and Joe Biden, I spent a long time looking at his website. I looked at Trump's too, because I'm fair and balanced. And Trump's <laughs> has nothing. There's nothing about his platform. Um, it has some of his achievements and many of them focus on, you know, getting people assistance. Some focus on saving people money by repealing the Obama care um, tax um, costs. But Biden's really focuses on expanding these programs. It really does. He talks about mm -hmm. it, you know, at every turn from his platform for black people, his platform for women, um, his platform for working families. He focuses on access. Hillary focused on access. Warren focused on access. What they don't tell you is that a soulless robot is deciding that access and mm. deciding it through arbitrary rules that you have no recourse to. Um, and in the example of the woman who died, you know, she followed the rules. One of the welfare rights um, movement's victories was to allow people to appeal these kinds of decisions. And now that they can, they're making that process just as difficult for the poor. So this woman finally won and she had already died from not getting the care that she needed. And so you really see the failure there of those kinds of platforms on their face. They may seem like, wow, they're really supporting social welfare and social services. But when you dig into the methods through which those things are actually allotted, you see that, you know, they're very, very narrow. They subject people to an incredible amount of scrutiny. And the process is just kind of humiliating for people. Yeah. Um, so I think whoever wins, you know, we've got to push back on this impulse that seems like it's just kind of carrying forward unchecked other than the, you know, UN <laughs> zombie like yeah. drift warning. Yeah. The biggest villain in American politics for both parties is the person who somehow manages to get a slightly better life than they quote unquote deserve through mm -hmm. some sort of government program, not the person who uh, administered uh, the program incorrectly and allowed someone to die. Like that's, that's, that's totally acceptable. But the other exactly. direction is just completely unacceptable. All righty. Yeah. Well, um, it's time for a guest, Ariella. I'm very, very excited to have Matt Karp on with us. Matt is a associate professor of history at Princeton University. He's the author of This Vast Southern Empire, Slaveholders at the Helm of American Foreign Policy. I actually read that book. It's fascinating. I had no idea. I'd never even thought about a slaveholder doing foreign policy. And he's also the author of a gargantuan new piece in Jacobin Magazine, looking at Bernie Sanders' five-year war against the Democratic Party, which I have sent to every single one of my friends Matt, how are you? <laughs> uh, I'm happy to be here. I like how in that uh, in the most of the social media clips for that article, they uh, they don't even have an image. I mean, that that on the website, there's the image of Bernie. But in all the other like preview images, it's literally just like pages of text. It's like, yeah, this is an article that you will have to read that has lots of text in it because it's like, well, that's the main thing you need to know about this article. It has like 9000 words in it. So that's like that's totally normal for just like a web article about a, a politician, like a, a hot take about Bernie Sanders. Totally normal and totally necessary. Also. 
Well, you know, it came out. It came out months after. Like there was like a wave of of postmortems that came out just immediately after. You took your time. You know, you you did your homework. You read through the data. Uh, you waited for all the exit poll uh, stuff to come out, and you combed through it. So, uh, you know, the the main thrust of a lot of those postmortems was like, was Bernie too radical, or was he, you know, not uh, radical enough? Um, and they, they, there was like a big debate over that, like, should he have worn an American flag pin or something on his suit lapel? Uh, but what is your kind of take um, in the wake of the defeat? Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. The problem is I had a hard time consolidating myself to one take. I had like at least like five big, big takes, meta takes. But I would say the the, the thing, you know, talking to, on a, to a Jacobin audience, um, the thing that uh, that is most important for us to reckon with is that, um, you know, Bernie had more success and and had and I think his achievement in national politics in showing that uh, there is a mass base for basic democratic socialist ideas like healthcare for all, funded by uh, redistributive uh, redistributive taxation, offered as a right by the state to everyone. Um, that this had a mass base of millions, not thousands. This is. Uh, but this is the, the most significant like left wing achievement in national politics, um, you know, in, in, in half a century. At the same time, we're a long way. We become relevant again, basically. But we're it's a long way from relevance to power. And, you know, in the, the, the last the first like half of the article is about coming to terms with his achievement um, and 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 trying to explain, you know, the ongoing resistance within the party to him, which is palpable and obvious. And I barely need to tell you guys about that. Uh, but the second half, really, the second two thirds is about reckoning with the limits and that gap between relevance and power. And the hard fact that Bernie, you know, showed, I think, in a lot of ways that that these politics, while they appeal to millions, uh, merely enunciating them at this moment is not enough to win a majority in a Democratic primary. I think after these two races, we can see that and the two races had different characters. They had uh, different contexts and, you know, it's interesting to, to compare and contrast. Um, and we can go into the, some of the demographics, which the article does at length. But, um, you know, we need to reckon with uh, the, the fact that right now we don't have a social democratic even, uh, or let alone a dem democratic socialist majority within the party. Um, and, you know, uh, to me that not having a majority is not an excuse for not trying to build one. We're closer than, than we've ever been, uh, in, in, you know, in at least 50 years. Um, so, uh, it's not a, you know, go home, game's over, you lost, you know, back to the doghouse. It's, uh, but it is a question of thinking concretely and, um, un unromantically in some ways, about not, you know, frankly, and I, I do this too. All right, all right, fuck it. Never mind. If Bernie comes back in 2024, I'll be romantic. But in the absence <laughs> of that, we need to think, I think we need medium term and long term plans and, and to think about how to burrow our way into a democratic majority. That doesn't mean that's not purely about institutional work within the party. That's not actually the strategy that I prefer. But uh, but we need to think about how to make to, to, to get this message from, you know, 35, 40 percent 
to 60 percent within a within a party, um, because I think to me, that's that's the only way for these really important ideas to 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 actually be achieved that would you know make the lives of millions of people so much better um, and uh, and and set the stage for more even more important transformations. Um, so I think we continue in Bernie's path, but we just recognize that there's that there's still a long way to go. Yeah, I liked that your article took a really sober assessment of things. It was like looking at a balance sheet of his campaign. Um, and I wanted to ask you about a specific area. You were talking about how it digs into demographics. So you explain kind of the struggle for him to win black voters. And, you know, that was kind of his Achilles heel. His policies were popular with them. He failed to mobilize them. And he failed to kind of gain general support there. Can you go into that a little bit? Yeah, in some ways, that's the element of the entire, um, you know, Sanders experience that stings the most. I mean, it's not the opposition from, you know, the Nancy Pelosi's of the world or the the institutional Democrats. It's not the suburban surge, which which really was decisive, I think, this time around. And we can talk about um, none of those those things were all kind of, you know, banked in when you had a, you know, a socialist populist candidate. Um, the hard part is that, um, is, is, is the, the Sanders, you know, despite his enormous success, his failure to mobilize significant portions of, 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 of the working class around a working class politics. And the most signal, uh, you, you know, failure there, it has to do with black voters. And first of all, I guess I should, just, I just want to be clear. I'm firmly in the camp of, uh, Adolph Reed and Willie Leggett who say, uh, and this cannot be said too often. There is no black vote. And the way that mainstream media repeatedly uses that phrase, it's just one of these kind of mind bogglingly, you know, casual racisms in my mind that just like show up in our discourse all the time without thinking like there is this blob vote. Yes, I know linked fate if you want to get academic about it and um, black voter solidarity is a thing historically, but there is no and there has never been a black vote. Uh, but what Sanders failed to do was win enough black votes. He failed to, if you will, split a larger portion of black voters uh, to break in his direction. And I think after two campaigns and after the failure of a progressive, even the Sanders style left in a number of other local and state race contexts to do that, we have to reflect on this as a major challenge for the left going forward in a way that I don't I, I don't think I've really seen a lot of wrestling with this, uh, a lot of hard wrestling with it. Part of it is that um, within the Sanders world, that that the attack has been so often so dishonest from, you know, neoliberal types who just want to say, well, ending racism, um, you know, and, and breaking up the banks won't end racism, blah, 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 blah. And we're so used to rebutting these this like very cynical kind of neoliberal identity politics that, um, you know, and we're so or, or trumpeting the way in which, well, Bernie did. He won Latino voters. And there were some polls before this election that had him ahead with black voters in some states uh, and running even almost with Biden before South Carolina with black voters. But the truth is it didn't happen. And we need to reckon with why it didn't happen here, why it didn't happen in uh, all sorts of other state races from, you know, AOC's congressional race uh, where black voters voted for Crowley to even the more recent and more inspiring wins um, by someone like Cory Bush. If you look at the district map in St. Louis, this happened after my article, you know, you know, working class, uh, and and lower class North St. Louis over you know ninety percent black those precincts went heavily for the incumbent opponent and um, she won enough of those votes to get into office and so I do think we can learn something from 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 Cory Bush but her 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 constituency was still 
you know, was was the kind of white progressives in the southern part of the city. Um, and and this is this was th this issue, this failure to break into black working class. Um, enclaves in, in, you know, neighborhoods, you know, you, it's really eloquent in the Sanders campaign and all sorts of other, you know, municipal struggles from Atlanta to, to Chicago. And I mean, for me, it, it's a complex issue. And I think one that deserves several articles on its own. And, you know, Adolph and Willie and Cedric Johnson, other people have written uh, at length about this too. But I think for me, my angle on this, my one little contribution, I think that, uh, that I would emphasize is Obama. I don't think we can underrate the importance of Obama in transforming the Democratic Party in his own image and making not just black politicians like the Jim Clyburns or the Hakeem Jeffreses of the world um, central to the party, not the way that they operated in Bill Clinton's Democratic Party, which was kind of brought in very cynically when needed for votes, but then reproved at every turn and told to pull up their pants and lectured at, at Stone Mountain and all sorts of horrible shit. Uh, with the, the party of Obama has made black voters the kind of spiritual center of the party. And of course, it hasn't helped the overwhelming majority of African-Americans. You know, black wealth was destroyed under Obama, et cetera. We know the material story. But I think the symbolic story is important, both that he was the first black president and also the way in which he represented a kind of symbolic changing of the guard within the party and the way the party presents itself. And I think in the absence of a kind of real material politics that has already made a difference in people's lives, which hasn't happened yet, I think it's reasonable on a lot of levels for people to say, to stick with that kind of affective and symbolic bond with um, with Obama, especially if all the institutional politics around you who have delivered what 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 small benefits you, you, you know, uh, what small pork barrel benefits you have gotten in, say, South Carolina, you know, for a, a Clyburn constituent. Um, uh, that combination of institutional and kind of symbolic politics is potent. And I don't think we can just turn, expect that we're going to turn it on its head by saying Medicare for all 10,000 times. Um, and we, we've learned that. So what I would say, the only faint, this is a long answer, I'm sorry, but the, the, the faint glimmer of hope is, you know, now we do have a, a, a there is a Cory Bush, there is a Jamal Bowman uh, who, you know, won, you know, won another important victory recently. And I think having visible African-American, uh, you know, we had Ilhan Omar, but African-American politicians, um, you know, African descendants of slaves, if, if you if you will, um, who are have prominent national positions who do not owe their their election to the institutional party um, who are, uh, I hope, remain tightly connected to a kind of a Sanders vision uh, for the party, um, that might be able to sort of slowly be a little wedge here. But I don't think we should expect that this is going to change overnight with the next, um, you know, with, if AOC ran for president in 2024, do I think she would win working class black voters in the South against even uh, against against the, you know, a Joe Biden? No, I don't. And I don't think we should fool ourselves that that is, is in the cards right away. Uh, there's a lot more, of course, work institutionally, work in the labor movement, um, you know, that we, that we can do on this front. Um, but, uh, but I think the first step is recognizing that this is not just around the corner. This is a phenomenon. This is bigger than Bernie, but Bernie was the most eloquent example of it. And it's a real challenge for, um, for, for, uh, for leftists and one that's not, we're not going to succeed in winning any kind of national power without um, a large portion of the black working class behind this, pro this, this project. And yeah, on, on the, but on the flip side of that, there was the, the story of Bernie and Latino voters, which you touched on briefly. And to my mind, that's one of the more undercovered phenomenon of the 2020 race, just because the stunning reversal from 2016 is, is, is just really 
it's really shocking. So, uh, uh, can you go into that? What happened there? What, what did the data say? Yeah, that's that's the flip side, and that's for me uh, one reason why some of the more pessimistic or or, or um, inhospitable, ungenerous takes on Bernie and and black voters uh, miss the boat. Where it's like, well, Bernie doesn't actually connect with people of color, or uh, even even leaving aside the really dishonest DNC kind of you know propaganda explanations, the ones that were at least in, well intended. Um, uh, but but we're emphasizing Bernie's failure to connect with working class voters of color for whatever reason, whether it was rhetoric, whether it was um, whether it was his positionality, whether it was, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the, the success with Latino voters completely overwhelms that. And to me, the, the big difference between black voters and Latino voters, at least one really important difference is there's no Latino Obama. The Latino political class, for what it's worth, um, you know, if you look at congressional districts in Southern California, for instance, this was the most eloquent example. Um uh, you know, like, you know, overwhelmingly endorsed Biden. I think one one Southern California Latina congressman endorsed uh, uh, Amy Klobuchar. Um, Bernie won virtually all of those districts. He won all of the Latino majority districts in Southern California, I'm, I'm pretty sure. And he won those heavily Latino, like 60, 70 percent Latino districts in Southern California, often with majority, uh, major- like, you know, against a divided field, he won over 50 percent. So, um this is this is this is this is something that um, the you know the the institutional ties and the and uh, that 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 whatever Latino politicians have in the community did not overwhelm you know Bernie was able to go above and beyond them or under them or through them in some way and win a lot of voters who had voted Hillary Clinton in 2016 um, because if you look at the turnout and this is the kind of silver this is the uh, the touch of gray if if I can go. Jerry Garcia here for a minute on the silver lining, <laughs> uh, because Latino turnout did not in most of these places in South Texas, in L.A., it did not go through the roof. It wasn't like Bernie brought in, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of like new uh, working class Latino voters who'd never voted before um, uh, and were suddenly like Bernie Sanders. He's the man. I'm a socialist. Give me that. Give me that Medicare for all. Uh, I'm not going to try to do it in Spanish. <laughs> Um, but because the numbers were like the same, they were flat. Dame ese Medicare, ya, ahora mismo, dámelo ahora mismo, gratis, totalmente gratis, no quiero pagar un dólar. <laughs> he did do that, he, he definitely did do that, and I, I'm a big believer that it is the bread and butter shit that got people out, and he did, he must have gotten lots of new voters, but the, so I think we need a lot more work on this too, more focused work on this, and, and data, data-driven work too, um, I guess Chuck Rocha, who was like the mastermind of all this, has a new book out. So maybe he'll he'll have some insight there. I'm sure they mobilized a ton of new voters. So I'm not saying that. But if you look at the overall turnout, it was relatively flat. So maybe a lot of other voters dropped out of the picture. And I think even maybe more powerfully, uh, they, they convinced voters. They turned kind of some middle age, especially I'm thinking, um, you know, middle age or even older Latino voters who were Clinton types into saying, no, I'm, a, I'm with T.O. Bernie now. And um, or I'm with, you know, whatever. I'm with my cousin, Bernie. You know, it's not just like he has to be so much older. Um, uh, what is cousin Bernie? <laughs> Nando? <laughs> primo, primo Bernie. Primo Bernie. Yeah, there were some primo yeah. Bernie voters out there. I think we should think about it. We should, you know, when we, <laughs> we're thinking about that. And for me, the Southwestern stuff story is front and center on where do we go from here? Uh, I, I don't know why um, uh, Lucille Royball Allard should not have a primary challenger from the left in her in the literally the next election. Bernie won fifty seven percent of that, that district. She was an early Biden endorser. She's deep DNC. She was on a, all these DNC committees. She's a complete 
party acolyte. Um, and she should, at minimum, have a left challenger of some note in California. And I, if DSA, if LA DSA and whoever else is out there is not working on that, that's a crime because that's that's an obvious first step for um, you know building more social democratic power in Congress. Um, so there are a lot of, and same thing goes in in South Texas. I mean, I know I know the the Justice Dems tried and almost won that victory. Um, uh, I think there are a lot there are a lot of other congressional seats, Denver, especially cities in the West, uh, heavily Latino cities where there there's a path forward. And I think that's that's a kind of a short term thing that we can do tomorrow. Uh, and in, in some ways, it doesn't require as much reflection and 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 debate as as what to do about black working class voters because look, I think Bernie showed that. Um, that that through or good organizing and through bread and butter messaging, um, uh, Latino voters are ready to join this. Uh, working class Latino voters are ready to join this coalition right now. Yeah, I want to circle back to kind of the achievements of the campaign because I think that um, people felt pretty demoralized, and you know they're kind of figuring out where to go from here. And you seem to make the argument in the article that it's like the cohesion of the DNC that stands between translating support for universal programs into national electoral victories, which rings true to me. Um, But I wonder what, you know, you say to those people who I think are generally well-meaning and who take from that lesson that they should move towards a third party or like the Greens or, you know, a democratic socialist party that kind of stands on its own. Yeah. First of all, just to just to 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 clarify and to throw and to and to you know uh, one of the main arguments of the piece is yes. Uh, just to restate what you said. Um, maybe not so much the DNC specifically, but the, the 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 sort of consolidation of the Democratic Party after South Carolina around Bernie was historically unprecedented. I don't care what how many times John Chait has to call me um, like a cuckoo conspiracist. It's just. A fact of history that 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 a winner of Iowa and a second a winner so called but a, a claimed winner of Iowa and a second place finisher in New Hampshire does not jump out before Super Tuesday. This has never happened before. It's only explicable given the kind of ideological and in their mind electoral stakes here. They thought Bernie would uh, everybody in 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 the from Pelosi on down Obama Pelosi on down thought that Bernie would be an electoral disaster. They needed to consolidate against him. That's just that's just clear as day. Um, but the, 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 you know, the other part is, well, why did they win, win all those voters? Why did Biden then instantly command all of those voters? That wasn't immediately clear. And we can talk about that. Um, but in terms of like the struggle within against these institutional leaders who have shown, uh, I agree with the critics to themselves to be implacably hostile to this Bernie style of politics. And, and I think anyone who's thinking that a Biden administration is going to do a new, new deal, just look at the coalition that elected him and think again, it's not happening. Um, I have very limited hopes for what Biden will be able to do uh, in office. Um, But at the same time, I think, what are the terms of the struggle that that we want to be in? Uh, You know, Bernie has shown by, by contesting this stuff within the Democratic Party, at least within the ballot line, and it, it has brought these ideas into a left-wing relevance that no Ralph Nader campaign ever came close to doing and ever will come close to doing. I mean, the third-party stuff, you know, Seth Ackerman, you know, ethered that argument, you know, years ago, uh, you know, in his investigation of how the American ballot line politics works. But, you know, any observer of history of the last, you know, 50 years also could tell you that 
third party stuff is just an ex it's just it's just an exercise in futility. Even in even in even in New York City, when where you know we tried to get I was out on the streets, you know, um, knocking on doors for Jabari Brisport, socialist Green Party candidate for New York Senate for New York City Council. He won twenty five percent of the vote. He ran in the Democratic Party uh, primary. You know, three years later, he wins. He's a state senator. I mean, it's just. It's just silly to think that 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 that, 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 that this third partyism. I mean, it was. I, I understand the impulse, but I think if you look at the results, if you're results oriented in any way, and I think we have to be. This is we're relevant now. We have to get to power. We have to be results oriented. We have to think what is actually gonna gonna claw back some power from these people. What do they fear? Do you think Nancy Pelosi and Barack Obama fear a, 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 a left wing third party congregating around the DSA? No, they would love that. There would there there would there would be nothing better than for the DSA to break off, maybe even with AOC, and take four percent of the party or something or whatever it is, and 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 kind of be this left wing whipping boy for them to dominate like a behemoth, the center of American politics. That's that's that 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 not only does that yeah not only does that not scare them they they, they would love that. We want to fight them where they fear us, um, which is. Uh, which is on the national stage. And yes, that does mean within the Democratic Party. And I, I, I think it's actually like as a critic of identitarianism, I think people who are have almost an identitarian grievance with fighting things within the Democratic Party need to think about that because this isn't about your personal um, you know, essence uh, when you get into the, when you're, when you're, you know, having an argument about Medicare for all, it's about what is the context of struggle in which that can be achieved. And if you're in which the headway can be made and if you're hung up on, oh, but this means that you're a Democrat. And, you know, this means that, you know, you're with the bad guys, you know, it, you're, you're thinking like an essentialist. And um, I think that's a mistake. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you, you, you touched on, this idea that the the Biden coalition um, that is shaping up is going to be completely an anathema to any sort of new New Deal, uh, to put it, you know, and and that was to me the most terrifying part of your article, but also the most kind of enlightening part of your article because I haven't seen anyone else touch on this kind of data. But you know, we love to make fun of the never Trump Republicans, you know, and like the Lincoln project and all that stuff. But in your piece, you coined the phrase Halliburton Democrats. And I, and I want to read a paragraph. In retrospect, neither Vo uh, neither Jacobin nor Vox anticipated the real story of the 2020 primary, which did not involve Warren style liberals, but a much more conservative tribe of wealthy suburbanites, disaffected Republicans who since the 2016 election have thrown themselves whole into Democratic Party politics, all across the Sun Belt, from the defense contractors of Northern Virginia to the energy corporations of Texas and California, Joe Biden was boosted not just by Patagonia Democrats, but by newfound Chevron, Raytheon, and Halliburton Democrats. And like some of the data you'd point to, like just 100% increases in turnout for Democratic primary uh, in in some of these ultra wealthy districts is just you know that that seems to me like the most very understudied thing, but also a very terrifying thing. Yeah, the, the, the mainstream media was very keen to pin Bernie's defeats on a withdrawal of particularly white working class support, you know, in Michigan and elsewhere. And uh, we can talk about that because there are cross race uh, issues with um, Bernie's working class support and just the level of working class participation in politics more generally uh, over the last several decades. That's something that we shouldn't um, we shouldn't wish away. But 
if you actually look at the numbers, the overwhelming difference between 16 and 20 for Bernie uh, in Michigan and everywhere else uh, was not with working class voters or in working class precincts. Uh, the new voters who came out and hammered him were voters making over $100,000 a year. Uh, you can see that in the Michigan exits very clearly. But uh, even beyond Michigan, if you look at the precincts, you know, counties are one thing. But I do think it's really useful to look at these turnout differences in precincts uh, at the at the neighborhood level, because counties, you know, even a rich county like Montgomery County, Maryland or or, you know, um, uh, Westchester County, New York or whatever has, you know, incredible diversity racially, but economically inside it. And, you know, this is America, you know, we have people sleep on the streets next to, you know, um, uh, next to giant mansions. And so you need, uh, you need to find those enclave of uh, geographically almost because they do exist. Those gated communities in the energy corridor of Houston, where you can really sense, okay, well, what's happening here at this level? And the, the turnout, it just actually staggered me, not just from yeah, I mean, we talked to the Patagonia Democrats. They were the kind of, you know, um, you know, immigrants are welcome here, uh, except probably not in my, you know, $1.7 million home in Cambridge, <laughs> you know, or something. They're welcome here to, like, cut my grass or something. I mean, that's the kind of Warren Democrats that we would be dunking on, you know, we were fighting with during the primary as Bernie people. Um, and, you know, I probably, you know, in some ways, I think I missed the boat by dunking on them because the truth is a lot of those folks, if Bernie had been the nominee, they would have been, they would have been our allies. They would have come through in a, in a Bernie versus Trump contest, no question. And I think ultimately we do need some upper middle class support for this project. So uh, if anything, I, I probably regret a little bit of the stinginess of some of those, of some of those dunk attempts uh, on the Patagonia Democrats, because the <laughs> other group that came in, um, the, uh, you know, are basically Enron executives, you know, in, in Houston and, you know, Raytheon employees in Northern Virginia. And uh, I actually got an email from a guy who's like, I'm one of your Halliburton Democrats in Northern Virginia. I, I, my first choice was Buttigieg. Uh, anyway, great <laughs> good data. I was like, okay, great. Uh, uh, I was like, I'm glad that soon is reaching. The, yeah. The, the, yeah. We'll have Halliburton socialists soon. Yeah. <laughs> These places were, you know, this is like literally where George Bush, you know, was raised. George and Jeb Bush grew up in Tanglewood, Houston. These are, um, you know, where Joel Osteen lives. I mean, these are really rich. I mean, that's just the tip of the spear. But if you look at a lot of these districts in, you know, say, you know, Charlotte or Raleigh, North Carolina, if you look at these places that were heavily Republican and much more Republican primary turnout several years ago in, you know, four years ago or or certainly before that, they've now become active Democrats because of this never Trumpism thing. And I, we thought it was a media phenomenon. We joked about it. Uh, but it turns out there are there are a lot of there, we thought there were like Jennifer Rubin was speaking to a room full of no one. But it turned out she was speaking to a room full of, you know, future Democratic primary voters. And she was making a lot of sense to them when they said when she said that, you know, President Trump was a Putin loving, you know, um, populist and, you know, needed to be restrained because he might do Medicare for all or whatever she says, you know, Um and 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 this this is a new block that we have to reckon with in the short term. Uh, certainly, I think they're going to make their voices heard in the Biden administration. They're going to be on the bleeding edge of austerity, I imagine. Um, and if if Biden wins, if Biden loses, they're going to probably gain even more power than the party because they're going to be uh, they They've already been promoted to front and center of the resistance and that that resistance will become even more urgent in a Trump second term. So um, either way, we're going to have to deal with them. 
I think uh, I, I think I don't think they're just going to like slink back to the Republican Party after Trump. I think they see the Democrats as the party of kind of a sort of technocracy and they want to be the right wing wing of that party. Um, and um, uh, I don't know what else there is to be said, but the, the I guess this goes to another part of the article is I don't think we can beat them by convincing them of anything. We need to outnumber them. We need to swamp them at the polls with people who didn't vote in this year's election. Yeah, I think yeah. that is a really crucial point and absolutely under-investigated. And I also think you're seeing people in the in the Republican Party look at that constituency and like imagine it as like a glistening hand. <laughs> you know, um, Michigan's governor just endorsed Biden. Um, I listened to an interview with him and I just found a quote that he said... Um, he called Trump a bully and said, being strong is standing up for your convictions. Being a bully is trying to intimidate those who are perceived to be weaker or a threat. Um, this is what Snyder said. And then he said, as a proud nerd, I have had to deal with bullies over many years. It is a tragedy watching our world suffer from one. But I do think what I a do cell think phone. His, Nerds against yeah. clean drinking water in Michigan. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I think... Um, you know, this kind of pushing to be the right wing of of the technocracy is absolutely right. I think that's kind of what he's getting at with the nerd thing. Um, and I think that other Republicans who have switched over and are saying, you know, the most important thing is Biden can work across the aisle and Trump can't. They're trying to pull people in with them. They're trying to court Halliburton Democrats. But they're also making a case before it happens that, you know, Biden's concessions to them have to be viewed as progressive because this stalemate in U.S. government was the worst thing that happened. Um, the degradation of rhetoric and the bullying was the worst thing that happened. So if you say like compromise and, you know, like only kick off half of the people off of food stamps, you know, then you're working across the aisle and you're good. I think they're kind of gearing up with that narrative. If you poison children, but don't also like make fun of them in your stump speeches, you know, then that's a yeah. advantage. Yeah, no, it's that gap between the symbolic and the material. We talked about it with the, with the, black, with the black voter situation, but I think it's, 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 it's just as staggering uh, on this front and how, and I think, I think you're right. We either win or whatever happens in this election, that is the, that is going to be the ongoing argument and claim to relevance of this, the Rick Snyder wing of the Democratic Party. I mean, I can't <laughs> saying that. That actually stunned me when he said, I mean, I thought I mean, yeah. he was not a, he was not a moderate. He was not a Mitt Romney even, right? He was like a conservative. Anyway, he is, he is a conservative. Yeah. yeah. He hasn't walked back from that. You know what his take on it is? He's like, I don't like bullies. Um, I listened to an interview where they were like, so now that you're endorsing Biden, do you support democratic policies? And he's like, I don't think we have to go as far as that. <laughs> he's going to endorse a ban on wedgies and swirlies, national yeah. ban on, on I don't know why things. he doesn't like Melania's be best thing. Isn't that anti-bullying? But yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the Democrats love, they love this shit so much, right? The, the, the nerd stuff and the like, you know, like we're, you know, we're the party of being best in school and we're the party mm -hmm. of doing our homework. And I mean, it is troubling to think about that is one of the many dark futures is the kind of, um, is, you know, where this, the, the, the Democrats, not just they're, they're leaning and lurching maybe in that direction already, 
but uh, if they if they if they you know wholeheartedly become the coalition that goes that runs the gamut, uh, as Dorothy Parker said, from uh, Snyder to Buttigieg, and that's like the that's like the the that that's the Democratic Party, and the Republicans become the party of this you know of the of the of the white working class people entirely, uh, and they become you know populist. Um, you know, xenophobes, that's, that's the entirety of the, of the party. I mean, you know, a lot of people say we're here already. Um, but I think it actually can be a lot more, it could, the policies, uh, haven't actually moved so far with the rhetoric. And if they do, that would be devastating. Um, so, um, I think it, I, I mean, whatever, I, 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 I guess I'm already, you know, I've, I guess I've already, you know, jumped, jumped the shark and become a sheepdog on this stuff. But I do think, um, that kind of situation where you have, where you would have, you know, would make class politics, which is what we're what we're trying to do here. What ja- Jacobin stands for one thing, it stands for that, I think. And how do you do class politics in that kind of environment? With, with the Sanders move, movement, movement, we had not just a viable class politics, but a class politics that moved and changed national politics. And to surrender that, to sort of, to just throw your hands up and say, and retreat to, um, you know, to kind of a sort of, you know, studied, you know, affected indifference to all this stuff that happens to give up on that kind of class struggle uh, as these parties continue their realignment. Um, I think it's I think it's a, it's a devastating error and maybe worse than that. Well, uh, Matt, uh, thank you so much for talking about your piece. Um, I would love it if you could stay on for our SALT segment because I think it dovetails nicely with what we just ended on um, and this uh, kind of influx of Halliburton Democrats into the Democratic Party uh, because this week was, I, I thought, like a, a, a culture war battle that was ripe for that exact thing, which was when Jeffrey Goldberg published in The Atlantic, a uh, scoop uh, that two years ago, Trump said that um, military veterans were losers, that he canceled uh, a visit to the cemetery outside of the American cemetery out of Paris, saying outside of Paris, saying, why should I go to that cemetery? It's filled with losers. And in a separate conversation on the same trip, Trump referred to the more than one, more than 1800 Marines who lost their lives at Bella Wood as suckers for getting killed. Apparently, Bella Wood is a consequential battle in American history, um, and the ground on which it was fought is venerated by the Marine Corps. America and its allies stopped the German advance towards Paris there in the spring of 1918, but Trump, on that same trip, asked aides, who were the good guys in this war? He also said that he didn't understand why the United States would intervene on the side of the allies. And this created kind of an explosion um, of discourse that I think was just very indicative of the current politics. But first, I want to get your take, because uh, you're a certified historian, professional historian. Why did the, should the United States have intervened in World War One? Who were the good guys in that war? <laughs> you know, because I think there's a lot of confusion. You know, I quote, quote Trump at the beginning of, 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 of the semester every year in my civil war class. He always, he asked the right historical questions. If you think about it, why was there civil war? You know, the civil war, why? You know, that's a really, yeah. that's a really important question. for us to Profound. And yet now he's asking World War One. were we the baddies? You know, this is a question that every student of 20th century history has to reckon with. Yeah, I mean, look, this is, you know, whatever, the moral evaluation of the, the different, um, different causes, the allies and the central powers in the war, 
people have different opinions. It's a lot of historical debate about, you know, the democratic, you could make arguments uh, uh, for the democratic character of the allies that Woodrow Wilson certainly made against the central powers. But a lot of, you know, I think they're pretty thin. The American Socialist Party at the time, you know, very bravely and perhaps um, uh, ruinously took a stand against U.S. intervention and was kind of harassed and and I mean, I think there have been Jacobin has done YouTube series about this, actually, but it w was harassed and repressed into virtual non-existence or at least massively reduced in its place uh, because of its brave stand against the war. This was an absolute imperialist bloodbath. And everyone, if you read, for instance, um, Christopher Clark's great book, The Sleepwalkers on the Origins of the War, uh, which, you know, you know, bounces from uh, Vienna to Berlin to Paris to Moscow to London. You know, every single one of these, you know, general staffs and political leaderships of these empires were absolute um, ghouls who were totally willing to countenance mass slaughter uh, at least the possibility of mass slaughter, even if they they all expected a short war, blah blah blah. They they saw European international statecraft as the opportunity to uh, to sort of you know play chess and crush the enemy with you know mass the the li life and death of millions being you know a, a, you know hardly any kind of consideration. And that goes for the French and the British uh, you know leaders and military political leaderships as much as the central power. So um, I mean, from my perspective. Um, no, uh, you know, I don't want to say Trump's right because, you know, he's not even he's not he's not capable of being right or wrong. He's just this kind of oozing wound, this like pus filled wound of just like, um, you know, of ego. And so he doesn't understand like, you know, he never wants to be in a position of the loser. Um, uh, but but uh, so I don't I don't really actually want to validate it. But yeah, no, that's not a thing. That's exactly the I think you're dead on. Nando. that's exactly the kind of thing that you're going to get, um, you know, flag waving nerds who are like, you know, who are really keen on defending intervention in the First World War, uh, which is not the hill that anyone should be dying on. Sorry uh, for the for the metaphor. Yeah, I remember when I yeah, I remember when I watched Wonder Woman when it came out, I was really bothered because it was about World War One and they made the Germans look, you know, they made them basically Nazis. Um, and I was like, that's that, that that wasn't like that. It wasn't exactly like that. But I, I want to bring in this Pete Buttigieg clip um, in response to this controversy, because I think, again, uh, you know, if, if your friend, the Halliburton Democrat who emailed you is watching the show, um, this is probably why he likes Pete Buttigieg. If you're a Republican and you've always voted Republican and it's hard for you to join the many Republicans who are walking away from this president, uh, think about this. Years later, we're going to look back on this moment and see that you could either be a John McCain Republican or a Donald Trump Republican. But you got to choose. Think about which you'd rather be. It says it all. It says it all. I want to be on the right yeah, side of history, the Pete Buttigieg side of history. <laughs> The yeah, scolding I mean, TA who's like, come on, guys, you yeah, got to choose. Like, He's very it, contrite. <laughs> it's just impossible to imagine a Republican saying the same thing. You know, like, I just want to talk to my Democratic friends out there. What kind of Democrat are you? Are you a Bill Clinton Democrat or are you a Bernie Sanders Democrat or something like that? Like, it's just it's it's so yeah. unimaginable for for them to do the same thing. Um, so, yeah. But the I the, mean, the other. Yeah, oh, go ahead. Go ahead, go ahead. No, I'm not going to, I was going to make an even a, sort of a wimpy partial defense of it, but I'm not going to do that. I just, <laughs> yeah. 
But yeah, because do it in the comments under it on YouTube. I mean, I guess I would just say just right. t- just just look. This is this is an this is an artifact of what happened in the primary. I guess that's all I'll say. That's mm-hmm. not a defense. It's just an analysis because these are the voters that they mobilized. These are the voters that actually came out in huge numbers. This is the army that Joe Biden's going to war with. So to be honest, like you know, I I, I actually think some of the progressives out there who are like Joe Biden needs to just like get behind Medicare for. I mean, a I don't mm-hmm. know, know who they're talking to, who they think they're talking to. That's not happening. It's not happening. I mean, maybe they think that they're showing Joe Biden's, um, you know, indifference to working people. So fine. If that if, if you think that works, go for it. But that's not happening. The army that they went to war with is this this Taliburton army. So that, that they don't have a lot of choice if they're going to beat Trump, uh, if they're actually going to win, win the battle, they have to use these weapons. So those are the voters that they, they need those voters in. The, you know, in the in the, you know, home renovation voter, the, you know, the home renovation caucus of, um, of, of you know, greater, greater Milwaukee. Uh, they need those voters now and they're not going to get them by talking about wages or whatever. They're going to get a job. Yeah. They're going to get them by talking about stupid, you know, shit that Trump says about historical events that, you know, that, you know, somebody's dad once read in a book and therefore are like the most important thing, you know, in in, in the country right now. Yeah, and then the the other the other kind of mind numbing vector of the discourse that this whole thing unleashed was the culture war that has existed around fake news versus quote unquote real journalism and the sort of like you know liberal outlets like the Atlantic and the New York Times, which have become kind of at the forefront of the of the resistance. Um, and it's it's telling that it came from Jeffrey Goldberg uh, relying on solely anonymous sources for this kind of just really gossipy story like it's it, it's not really like a, a a scoop that actually matters in any meaningful way but and you know because usually you rely on anonymous sources when there's like someone's actually like you know their life is in danger or they have some actual meaningful uh threat of repercussion but this is just kind of gossip um and jeffrey goldberg of all people is the guy who in 2002 published a story in the new yorker linking saddam hussein to al-Qaeda, which was absolutely key in the run-up to the Iraq war, this case that Saddam Hussein somehow, in some way, was involved in 9-11. So this, it's just this, this kind of, this, this annoying kind of culture war between fake news on the one hand and, and like screams of fake news on both sides versus quote-unquote real journalism. I don't know. I wanted to get you guys' thoughts on that. Yeah, Ariel, did you have a take or I can, I can jump in. You go, you go. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I just, I think it's the same. It's, it's, it's so, I mean, to be honest, look, I, I, I came out, I outed myself on Twitter the other day about this. Like, I think this, this, this needs to end. And this is why I said, I'm no longer grill pilled. I actually want Biden to win this election. I actually, I don't think that, I don't actually think that should be a controversial position on the left. Um, mm-hmm. Not because, I, precise, not at all, because I think the Biden administration is capable of delivering literally one damn thing. On, on on any of the issues that we care about. But because as long as Trump is the guy, as long as the democratic, the news cycle is dominated and, and not just the news cycle, the entire democratic edifice, including a lot of progressives, include, and not that is not necessarily progressive media people, but people like my mother and my uncle who are, mm-hmm. you know, Medicare for all Democrats, but they their heads are on a whiplash with every one of these stories. Yeah. Now he went after the troops. There are a lot of just ordinary people who should be part of our caucus, who should be thinking about, you know, blood and guts issues and, you know, who are instead thinking about nonsense. And as long as and and if you think that 
Um, I, yeah, I guess I'm totally commandeering this to do a. This is the ultimate sheepdog. But if you think, uh, I, if you Not think that, that Trump being Trump that 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 that, uh, that, that these kinds of issues, they're not going to go away after Trump loses, if, if Trump loses. No. But if you think that they will occupy the same amount of space under a Trump administration versus under a Biden administration, where we can be sitting there arguing about austerity and we can have a forthright conversation about how exactly much the government owes workers and how much it doesn't, how much it owes the bankers, you know, that's going to be the arguments under Biden because we're in an economic crisis that somehow we've forget about because this nonsense over Trump dominates middle-class discourse. So uh, if you think that that context is, is, if you'd rather talk about economics and talk about class and talk about inequality, then, uh, then, then you have to get this guy out of here because the more he's in here, the more he can dominate the news cycle and not just him, his opponents. It's, you know, I don't know, Nando, if you're a wrestling guy, I may, maybe you are, I am. Um, you know, no, you know, am. Michael was right. Like if you yeah. like, like they need each other, right. They, you know, you, you know, yeah. this better than me yeah. then they, the Jeffrey Goldberg and Trump need each other. Like, you oh, know, yeah. like WO and, uh, and the, and the, and the WCW, you know, need look at CNN's profits in the wake of Trump. Yeah. Yeah. But what I think is interesting now is that, I mean, you do see this kind of frenzied obsession over, you know, people's feelings about these offensive things. And I think that points to something that is like very true about human beings and this kind of um, expectation of democracy and ideology, which is that, you know, a person's feelings create choices and those choices create political realities. We don't have that. You know, we don't ha we don't have a world where your feelings can impact it at all. Um, that's the world socialists want. We want a world where we can have those conversations and we can say, like, if you feel really strongly that, like, putting kids in cages isn't just politically wrong, it's morally wrong. We want a world where, like, that feeling, the center of that, the kind of, like, spiritual and emotional center of, of people's political ideology can be expressed and can actually change things. And both sides are really, really good at like bracketing that um, and reorienting it to specific issues that do make people feel a lot. And like, you can't discount the value of that, of people's passion and people's emotional responses. Um, but it just doesn't go anywhere. So you have these like meaningless scandals over and over and over again. and. They do the same thing to the left where they're like, someone was mean on Twitter. Someone said this cruel thing on whatever, you know, it's about redirecting the emotional impulse that can undergird some of these political developments and being like, no, look over there. But I also think like it's a mistake to totally write it off because we want to tell people like you are absolutely right to have strong feelings about what happens to you. That is what democracy is based on. That's the democratic impulse that we all discuss it together and we come to a consensus. We do not have that world. One of the reasons we don't is because like you're constantly being distracted or reoriented with like Trump's burn book, basically. Um, and so I think as as democratic socialists, we need to you know really focus on why people come to that. Um, to begin with, why democracy actually like relies on and fosters the honest expression of emotion and passion in political ideology and like why it's the only option that can.
Sorry, I got very meta, but <laughs> no, that was very poetic. Uh, that was yeah. really that was really important. The, the, we can't run away from narrative and emotion. Absolutely, and you're right. And it's it's the problem is that it's being it's being preyed on for this for these for this essentially what is trivia. Um, yeah. And people aren't, you know, connecting the, that that emotion to material circumstance. I mean, part of anyway, we could go, we could break it down further, but um, I almost think we should wrap this discussion up with that with that yeah, comment, yeah. though. So. Yeah, absolutely, Matt. Thank you so much for for joining us, fellow Bernard brother, one of our best, one of our best fighters that we put on the front line every single time. Uh, really appreciate you coming on, uh, and we're definitely going to have you back next time you write a massive piece in Jacobin that everyone's going to share. Thanks, Amanda. Thanks, Ariella. It was great talking with you guys. This was fun. Thank you, Matt. <laughs> well, I guess I'll jump in. Hey, guys. Hi, Kale. <laughs> How's it going? Um, Hi, Kale. Today's show has been great. Ariel, thank you so much for stepping up and doing today's show. Sorry to get, after your meta <laughs> comment, I now have to get meta about the show a little bit. Um, oh, but you Break can, the fourth you, wall. Yeah. Um, if only, if only we can bring our wonderful audience on the show with us. Um, although I'm going to do that for a moment because there was a comment that was just too funny to pass up. But before I do that, if people do have super chat questions, they should put it in the the live chat and we'll try to answer them, uh, or at least some of them, uh, in the next couple minutes. But someone was asking, um, or not asking, someone was saying, um, ooh, Nando, where'd you go? He doesn't well, want to hear this. He doesn't because the comment <laughs> the comment was asking is Nando at the dentist's office. <laughs> this is <laughs> in previous episodes he was there. He is Nando. Sorry, people want to know are you are you at the dentist office right now? What's up with your background, dude? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What's wrong with it? You know, it's a paint, it's a photo. Uh, I don't know. It's like a beach or something. <laughs> <laughs> All right, if you say so. I thought it was a wall of like sticky, sticky notes or something. Or yeah, yeah, yeah. it's like a beach. Those are those are like yeah, umbrellas on a beach. My house or my background. Let me see if I can do this right. It's full of like sex books (laughs) from the sex book. (laughs) So I turned it away because I was like, I don't know if people want to see boys and sex. All of my sources back there, intercourse. Just good, the, different, but... the different categories of porn on different shelves. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, the internet's for porn. Right. Yeah, the, the, <laughs> the same idiot box that you're watching, it was Jacobin's weekend's on. <laughs> it's, it's, they it's can Jacobin, do it all. You, you get Jacobin and porn from the internet. And yep. I don't know what else people use it for, but... Hot takes. Um, and hot takes. Oh, and that's Twitter. the worst. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> They should really limit it to just Jacobin and porn. <laughs> work on that. Work on that campaign, Kale. Oh, yeah. That's the, the next phase of the, the YouTube rollout. I'm just stalling That'll right now. That'll be great Wait. for the left. You're <laughs> yeah, just waiting I'm, for questions? Yeah. Where are the questions, comrades? I do we- not know how this works. Um, so I'm sorry. I see like a, I see comments, mm-hmm. um, a lot of them, but I don't know where the questions come in. Is it the same place? Give me a little, yeah. a brief yeah, so lesson here. It's the same place, but then it'll be a different kind of notification. It'll be a super chat. Um, 
And so the whole thing is people drop us a couple bucks and ask us a question. Um, oh, did I miss one? Okay. Somebody said, what up? Okay. Oh, word up. Yeah. Now they know we're looking at the comments. <laughs> <laughs> we broke the fourth wall again. Yeah, but... Uh, it never works. It never works. Um, we're all still in our rooms, and except for Nanders at the dentist. Um, scroll up to... Oop, not that one. Uh, <laughs> where is sports... Uh, Sports leader asked a question. I don't see it. Um, I don't know. Maybe Matt Carp has a question for us. <laughs> we can throw Matt back on to. <laughs> Matt, Matt, what can... haven't we? What haven't we answered yet? <laughs> I don't wait. So the theme of the 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 the, the shtick is you're supposed to ask questions. I mean, look at some of the comments. Um, I, okay, I'm um, useless. No worries. All right. Well then. <laughs> We'll see you later, dude. So Champagne Communista asks, uh, do you think Biden uh, should be trying to mobilize new voters based on working class issues or just mobilizing his base where he barely beats Bernie? But we just had a whole conversation on that. I think, uh, of course, we all think like the key to power is to mobilize as many working class people as possible. But like, he's not gonna look at like, look at who he's centered around, like who's around him in his campaign. Look at where the money's coming from. Like, he, like, even if, like, his biggest issue is that, like, he can't even communicate, like, the political project that he's advocating for, that, like, he's an ineffectual, like, neoliberal in some ways of, like, uh, even articulating, like, you know, austerity with a with a smiley face, like. Well, I think part of it, though, is, like, you know, he's, I remember I took a poli-sci class in college, and our professor was like, okay, if you're going to build a store in a neighborhood, and there's one store here. Where do you build your store? And all of us thought, oh, we're going to go into like the other end of the neighborhood. And he's like, no, you build it directly next to the other store because you get all their traffic. I think he's really looking at, you know, who were Warren supporters, who were Buttigieg, Klobuchar. I'm going to forget some of the other ones. Um, but Harris, that was it. <laughs> you know, he can scoop those people up with, you know, kind of the, the basic thing that he's already been doing. And at the same time, he can court like Halliburton Democrats and um, disaffected Republicans who want the um, kind of old school, like policy driven, strong leadership that they don't think is happening with Trump. I think these disaffected Republicans are really upset with him, you know, going to like fighting with China. Right. All of these um, tariffs. I think they're they're wanting something more similar to what Biden is proposing, um, and I do think he's weak. I think he's um, like a frail candidate, uh, but I also think that's part of the calculus of the Democratic Party. They know they know why Bernie lost. Um, they never had any um, illusions about that, and. They're only going to try to court the left when it really matters and can really make a difference. And if and and I think they will do that to a certain degree. Um, but I think for the most part, they're going to be going after that coalition of people who was behind Warren, Klobuchar, so and so, the other one, <laughs> and disaffected Republicans. Mm -hmm. Nanda, do you have thoughts on that? 
on Biden's electoral strategy. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that he's going to he's going to go hard on he's not going to try to do the Ed Markey. You know, he's, he's just not going to try to do that, like what Ed Markey did um, and try to, like, you know, rally around Green New Deal and Medicare for all. He's going to try to eke it out with um, the strategy of of appealing to suburbanites, essentially, which is going to make the race tighter than it should be. Um, because I think those suburbanites want to vote, want to vote for him. But at the end of the day, they don't really trust the Democrats on the issues that they care about, um, the most that, you know, they, 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 re- like they, they really just in their bones don't trust them, but they just don't like Trump. So like, they're going to, he's going to try to like squeak it through in that strategy. And it's, if he does win, I think it will probably be a squeaker. Like it's not the, the, the big lead in the polls that he had, two or three months ago is evaporating like so quickly and um and he's just not going to do anything to change that dynamic i can't see anything unless something big some exogenous force it's like something really big and new happens with the coronavirus or something like that um it, it's it's not he's not going to do anything to, to reverse that trend so it's it's a matter of like whether that trend is going to not converge in time for the election right and and we should, you know, the existing endogenous forces of coronavirus, of the recession, all these factors and the fact that, like, an opposition candidate to Trump is, like, probably going to barely squeak it out means that, like, what Biden and, like, that political coalition is, like, it's, it's you know, it's in its dying days. Like, it's it's becoming a smaller and smaller coalition every four years. And so, you know, I mean we'll see if the left is going to be able to muster up the the forces that like Matt was talking about a moment ago, being able to outnumber the Halliburton uh, Democrats. Um, yeah. Hopefully, hopefully we can, but uh, you know, uh, God, I don't want to speculate on the future. Who knows? <laughs> the future is going to be yeah, bad either. folks. Yeah. Um, uh, so um, someone had asked Nando, where are your books? They're just still really concerned about your, your books, man. Yeah. You know, I, I don't do performative intellectualism like that. Like I'm convinced half these people on the like Zoom. Matt. Uh, yeah, exactly. Oh, like, you know, it's one of the words shelf. for that. Yeah. You know, all these people, they, what they do is they go online and they buy like those books in bulk. They don't even know what the hell is in them. Um, some of them do it like color coordinated and stuff as just a way to, you know, they're it's, not real it's, books. They're Sky Mall. They're empty. They hold yeah. remotes. Each one has a remote in it. Exactly. So yeah, unfortunate. Exactly. No, I don't. I don't do that. I'm, I don't pander to the audience. You know, I don't do performative, performative stuff at all. You know. So, yeah. So, um, Lee Levin, who uh, I know who this is, uh, was asking. I guess it's it's a question through her from her husband Mike, uh, who asks, um, just what our take is on Jane McAlevey's assertion recently in the Nation that. Uh, what she's coming at it from is that Biden not talking about jobs uh, could very well cost him the election. Um, I mean, I think that's just a given that like, that's like, you know, like what I've said about the 2016 election is like, or it's not, not just me, but other people said this as well is like of the two candidates, which one talked about jobs, which one talked about like plant closures, which one went to Wisconsin. And even if it was, even even though he was like completely full of shit, like, you talk about jobs, you will, and like, and the fact, like, talk about people's actual economic reality that they've experienced. Like, you will get some people to say, fuck it, you know, like, 
I got nothing else to lose. I might as well like jump on board with this. Um, you know, hopefully we don't get, uh, you know, a total recreation of 2016, but, uh, I don't put it past the Democrats to, to lead us into that future. So the old Clinton cliche is still true. It's the economy stupid, you know, like that's one of those conventional wisdom things that still holds up. And it, the, the, the candidates who talk about that the most are the ones that win. I mean, the culture war is just poison. It's absolutely poison um, electorally. You know, it's interesting on Joe Biden's uh, website. It's called Joe's Vision. Um, he does talk about jobs. Um, he talks about jobs and economic recovery for working families. He talks about creating like ap- opportunity and access to jobs. He doesn't seem to do it in his events. And what that makes me think is that the strategy of not talking about jobs is like a kind of dog whistle to upper middle class suburbanites because he's he does say we need to build back better. We need to build the country back better. It's kind of saying like, let's get back to normal. Let's get things going again. That to me does seem like it would really appeal to that constituency. They're just like, we're over it. We don't want we don't, we're tired of the protests. We're tired of the rioting. We want things to be the way they used to be. Um, and then in these kinds of like more unpacked policies on his website, in his platform, he talks about creating opportunity, right? Creating opportunity for jobs, creating opportunity for, um, work for like for working mothers is one of the things in his, um, Biden's plan for women, Biden's agenda for women. Sorry. That, title creeps me out. So I had to say it in full. Um, (laughs) And so I think like, you know, I think part of that is absolutely right. I think that he, I think the Democratic Party in general has been ignoring what people are actually going through. When they made fun of Trump for talking ad nauseum about like how inefficient toilets were and refrigerators and stuff, they were basically like, shitting all over what every dad in the world cares about. If you said to <laughs> all the dads, my platform is close the kitchen door because I'm not paying to heat the out of doors, right? My platform is like, let's make the thermostat stay where it is. You'd get a lot of people on your side. Like that, people relate to that and they relate to it because they are making those decisions. They are making those considerations about energy use. And he's going around delivering these things being like, you're dishwasher is wasting money and that's money out of your pocket every day. You might as well pour it down the drain and your toilets are using all this water. And all the democratic establishment does is laugh and laugh and laugh. And it's perfect because it makes them seem so out of touch and they don't even have to say anything, right? They don't even have to, you know, vocalize any disdain for working class people making these considerations. They just have to snicker and laugh and it plays right into his hand. And I think like, you know, you've, we've seen this from the beginning of these campaigns. Um, I, I do think that it's a miscalculation, but I also think that they're going to be, you know, focusing on those things, those votes that they think are more likely, to be honest, um, and pushing for um, turnout from demographics that they feel, you know, vote more and have more robust voting records. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, Nando's just going in and out of the twilight zone today. In and out. Um, no, I think that's I think that's so right, Ariella. And I would just add, and this is like 
you know, a little self-criticism for the left as well on on the topic of jobs. And and Jay McAlevey makes this point uh, all the time uh, whenever, at least in the last couple of years, like it's kind of been something she's been drilling down, especially with in the context, for instance, of the Green New Deal, that like the left can't just say, oh, we're going to have good jobs. Like we're going to do this. We're going to transform society. It's going to be an incredibly different, new, better place where all your needs are met and there's going to be good jobs for you. Like that the jobs can't be the leftovers, like the transformation of people's actual days, like the actual, like how they spend the majority of their waking lives, like in a job that has to be front and center. If you're going to get a big popular uh, support for these projects, like, um, and the conservatives, they don't have to uh, articulate, you know, uh, what, you know, better jobs will look like because their entire project is, it's, it's conservative. It's like, it's pulling people. It's like maintaining the status quo where it is. Like as progressives, it's incumbent on us to actually convince people that we're going to take you somewhere better. And not just, and I should add, cause like, I don't want it to sound a little too like vanguardy because like, it's not that we're taking people like it's like solidarity is about building the relationships where we all together are taking people like, taking the entire working class as the working class forward. So like if you're not incorporating working class issues, especially in the workplace, especially where people spend most of their waking lives into consideration in these like big platforms and projects, it's, it's not going to get off the ground. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, there's, there's one more question. Um, Ariella caught it. Thank you for, <laughs> for finding this one. Um, from uh, uh, the sports leader, um, and they ask, uh, what steps are actively being taken by the left and its institutions to signal boost and support rural and working class black voices? I'll let one of you jump in first. <laughs> not enough? <laughs> well, uh, not, none? yeah. I don't know. I think... Very little? I don't know. I think right now we're at a, at a really interesting place with race in America. Um, and I think that one of the focuses, so there's a criticism about people pushing for representation. Um, and I think that, you know, you can imagine my points about that would dovetail with my bigger points about emotion and passion and political ideology. And so I do think that focusing on representation is important and it shouldn't be, you know, written off or brushed aside. Um, I think what I've seen, I live in the Hudson Valley, um, after the um, protests, there have been a lot of people, there's already a cop watch here, um, but they've been working with, the Black Lives Matter groups in my area have been working with um, the DSA here and um, farmers, minority farmers. Um, And so they um, have been trying to kind of you know, boost that. But I think um, part of the problem here is that particularly with rural communities, the infrastructure to get people's voices out there just isn't there. It's not around. Um, You see, unfortunately, I personally feel this way, like the left is really centered in New York or big metropolitan areas. And that's because there's already the infrastructure to have like a communications project or make a magazine or, you know, publish a book. 
And so I think it'll take a while to make inroads with people. I think it's absolutely necessary. Um, But I do think that, you know, we're behind. And part of that is because the left is pretty new at this point, right? And it's emerging with new considerations. And a lot of that is um, focusing on um, uplifting people or including people um, and being equitable about the way that that works. And we have to reckon with, you know, the kind of structures that mediate the way information is disseminated and mediate like who um, has access to that stuff. Um, And so we really need to do the work of like making those links, I think. Um, I also think that, you know, in terms of working class Black voices, not rural Black voices, um, I think there's a lot of a, a lot of that like emerging. I think it already has. The legacy of Black radicalism in America is deeply intertwined with the legacy of socialism and communism in America. You know, you see slave revolts that started as communists trying to unionize workers and being lynched for it. And that was Black descendants of slaves or, you know, Black slaves in some instances. And so you see this from slavery to Reconstruction to Jim Crow, that the the left and, you know, the demands of Black radicals have been the same, right? Like, you see it with the Black Panthers, um, universal programs for every child. That's why every child has breakfast in America. Um, and I think part of what gets obscured now is, like, people are rightfully wondering if they have shut people out of this process. And And as the left emerges, they're thinking like, we have to be inclusive and we have to represent the country that we live in. And so they're looking to its history and they're trying to say like, how how can we see black or Latin voices in this, right? And, And how have they been upheld? But it does obscure this long history of black socialism and black communism that's just already existed that hasn't necessarily like been brought into this moment. And it absolutely informs it. It is like the legacy on which it's based. But, you know, we have some catching up to do with just telling the story the right way, too, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like five years ago, five or six years ago, I was I hosted the the Fight for 15's national um, kind of like conference. They had like this big kind of annual meeting and, and it was it was in St. Louis and uh, um, and there was, you know, thousands of people there. And then they had kind of people Skyping in from all over the country. And I was like struck by just the, the leaderships uh, of that movement that I was that I was asked to be a part of just for that one event, you know, like uh, was very, you know, felt like was was multiracial working class. Like it's like the what you want. Right. Um, and but none of that that hasn't translated to. You know that has they they haven't like the, the whatever to to whatever degree like the left has like some you know both media in, institution media clout um, or political institutions like have not you know they did not none of those people kind of came and and became you know a, big members of the Bernie Sanders campaign or you know uh, absorbed by left media in any way um, and I and I wonder I always wonder if that was just kind of like a missed opportunity because those people actually won victories right you know to the extent that. You know the left has won victories in 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 the past couple of years. The five for fifteen movement was a you know has won victories in in places that you would not expect 
them to to win victories um and and it just seems like a it seemed like to me like it was like a missed opportunity that that you know we we just didn't take mm-hmm. yeah oh and by the way weekend is currently signal boosting me because i'm from maine (laughs) (laughs) and when i grew up there i was like one of i don't know like 17 black people in maine um but it's changed and uh (laughs) no there's way more there's a lot of somalian people who moved there and they have like formed these really heartwarming french language groups with french canadian or like you know French-Canadian-speaking Mainers. Um, And in Maine, actually, when they moved, the Klan came from, like, somewhere in the South to protest it, and Mainers counter-protested, but not not specifically, like, in an anti-racist way, more in a, like, you can't come to my state and tell me what to do way, because that's the way Mainers are. It's, like, very, like, more libertarian. Um, But, yeah, it's changed a lot there. My mom said that, that her DSA chapter is is diverse. I mean, my sister is in it too. So that's one more black. (laughs) But yeah, I think, I think a lot of that is changing. I think that the way that the left um, becomes visible to people is still stilted. Um, I don't think that it reflects like the actual true diversity there. Um, And I don't think that the history that we tell ourselves about it does either. And so hopefully like whoever you are, you know, write it. Right. For Jacobin. (laughs) <laughs> for Jacobin. And and just also like the building up of both of what you've just said, I like so much of this is dependent, so much of like political activity on the left is dependent on real actual relationships that people have. And so when the left has spent decades in academia where, you know, it's far, you know, it's gonna be far more middle class, far more white, uh, and um, you know Stop and, making fun of Matt. <laughs> we are making fun of that. Um, Princeton nerd shit, Some nerd shit. But like, but also like white middle class, and also importantly, like upwardly mobile. That like people that are like looking for career trajectories. Like, you know, some of them are you know disproportionately like it's not going to be like left politics, but some of them are going to go left, and like the demographics it all hits is what DSI looks like or any of these other organizations, like maybe not all of them, but a lot of kind of these progressive left groups. And so that's not an indictment on the people who spend their time doing left politics. Like, great. Like you should be like, that's an incredible way to spend your time outside of work is like trying to organize around something that like is going to hopefully lead us to a future where, um, you know, people's needs are met. But at the same time, like, you know, as long as the left has remained on the campus and it's not the case as much anymore, but like to the extent that it has, like you just don't have relationships with normal working class people like of all different skin colors. And so I think we're going to see the left will become more diverse. And I think it's through a lot of the ways that we've talked about. Um, And, uh, you know, again, I think Matt's right that like electorally, like we should look to like what Cori Bush has done in, uh, in St. Louis, but um yeah, I mean, I think it really just comes down to you have to you actually have to talk to people and figure out like what they want and need and what they care about and build relationships around means where you can kind of work with them in some in a political capacity. I mean, you should just, you know, meet people and become friends with them. But like, you know, on a political level, you know, find the the ways in which you can, you know, 
you forge solidarity and, you know, even like class consciousness through actual political struggle. So like it's, you know, we're a small part of the American population on the left, but I think the more that we actually, you know, do our part to, to, you know, fight for these issues that matter to people and engage with them, not just, you know, cry out into the wind, like, you know, like we've been saying, we can say Medicare for all we want, but like, if we're not going door to door talking to people, like it's going to be difficult to pull people to our side on this. Yeah. Um, well, we're almost at two hours. Uh, so maybe I'll duck out and I'll let you guys close the show, but you've both been fantastic tonight, even though Nando's in a dentist office with shaky Wi-Fi. (laughs) I don't blame you. It takes so long to get into the appointment. You might as well do something in between. I know. <laughs> they can only squeeze me in right at between uh, ten and twelve Pacific. Right when I right when I tape Jacobin weekends, and I was like, okay, fine. You know, actually, when when the Wi-Fi was ducking out, I was actually getting a teeth clean, and yeah. then they would come back, and yeah. I think it came through a little. Heard that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but thank you both. Well, thank you, well, Ariel. Thank you so much for for joining us thank you so much for subbing in for anna you were a worthy worthy sub you did great oh, the fans you. loved you your commentary was fascinating Thanks, i fan. genuinely had no idea about that so now i learned something i really so, yeah. loved being on the show thank you for having me um and uh, i look forward to watching you and anna next week yeah we will and i can't wait to read your book so thank you so much i need some tips i need some tips for my life you know what i mean <laughs> Uh, <laughs> we all do. We all do. <laughs> all right. All right, thank guys. You, thank Nando. you so much. Thanks for all watching, right. everyone. Take it easy, everyone. Bye bye.